right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Today is March 7th, 2023. I want to thank you all for coming to this class tonight. Our class is a continuation of the class that we had uh, two weeks ago on an overview of one year of war in Ukraine. Uh, it's a very important subject right now for us to understand as this war continues into its second year. Uh, this class is going to cover from September of 2022 on up to the present day and where we currently stand in the conflict. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind you that this is a party-sponsored and initiated school, and it's part of a long line of party-sponsored schools from the Jefferson School of Social Science, the People's School of Marxist Studies, all the way up to today with the People's School of Marxist-Leninist Studies. I also want to remind comrades that since this is a school, please try to take notes. Uh, be respectful in your comments when you give them. Also, before we get started with our class tonight, I, I want to remind comrades that tomorrow, March 8th, is International Working Women's Day. Uh, this is a very important uh, day for us communists, especially because uh, it has a very uh, intertwined history with the communist movement. Um, the first recorded National Women's Day was in the United States in 1909 by the Socialist Workers Party. And on March 8, 1917, the women textile workers in Petrograd rose up and demanded peace and bread and also uh, the end of Tsarism. Um, so that was a very important part of our history as well. And so we were going to have a class this week from the Women's Commission for International Working Women's Day. But that kind of fell through, which is OK. One of our affiliated organizations, RE, had a good uh, webinar, but we're just going to go ahead and continue with the, the Ukraine class for this week. Uh, comrade, is there anything you want to say before we get started? You heard the uh, song, The Sacred War, at the beginning. I'm sure you're already familiar with it. It is the anthem of the Great Patriotic War. It was written within 48 hours from the beginning by Alexander Alexandrov, the founder of the Red Army Choir. That's all. Okay, so this is the overview of the one year of war in Ukraine. It's the second part. Okay, so what we're going to be learning today, we're continuing the timeline of events from September 22 on, looking at various statistics on casualties, equipment, subsidies, etc observing maps of Russian versus Ukrainian controlled zones, discussing prospects for the war as it goes into its second year since February 24th. Okay, October 22nd till January of this year, 23. In September, October 22, Russia was seemingly at a bad position in the war due to American blame on Russia for the Nord Stream sabotage, albeit foolish, that's for sure. Fascist Ukraine's successful counteroffensive in Kharkov. Uh, Kharkiv would be like the Ukrainian you know, uh, pronunciation, but we all say Kharkov, Soviet style. Having been demonized and ostracized in the international community and receiving little help from other countries. Ukrainian bombing of a Crimean bridge used by Russian forces on October 8th. It's a bridge that connects Russia proper to 
the Crimean Peninsula, the Kerch Peninsula, it's called. October, November 22, October 10th, Russia retaliates against Ukraine for the attack on the Crimean bridge by unleashing a missile barrage, barrage across all of Ukraine, including Kiev. Attacks would continue through October and November. October 12th, the United Nations passed resolution ES-11-4, which encouraged nations not to recognize the democratic votes of the four regions, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Lugansk to join the Russian Federation. We got 143 nations voted yes, including all of the West, obviously. 35 nations, including Cuba, Laos, Vietnam, India, Pakistan, and China, abstain. Five voted no, our good allies, the DPRK, Nicaragua, Belarus, Syria, and Russia. Phase fourth from November 10th to the present. November 15th, after 85 to 100 Russian missiles were are fired at cities across Ukraine, a Ukrainian air defense missile accidentally hit Prezvodo, sorry, in Poland and killed two civilians. Initially, Ukraine blames the explosion on Russia, asked for a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and continued to deny responsibility for the attack for days following the event. NATO meetings were called by Poland and other NATO states, like Hungary, on the basis of Article 4 of the NATO Charter. The possibility of invoking Article 5 of the NATO Charter was brought up if it was found to be an international Russian attack. This would have meant the start of World War III. November, December 22, in a battle of Bakhmut, but we're gonna say Artyomovsk, okay? That is the Soviet and uh, Russian name, not Bakhmut, that Zelensky stuff, which had been going since uh, going on since the initial Russian assault in August, Russian forces were making minor advances and were starting to surround the city from both sides, with Wagner, by the way. The conditions of the battle were brutal. It was approaching winter and much of the battle was now trench warfare, like uh, Verdun, World War I. By December, Bakhmut was becoming a meat grinder. Much of it lie in ruins and Russian and Ukrainian forces were constantly fighting, sometimes only 100 meters apart, street by street, similar to what? Stalingrad, we know. December 12th, Zelensky asked the G7 for tanks, artillery and long range weapons, to which the G7 agreed, no surprise. December 24th, Zelensky visited the US and met with Biden and addressed Congress the same day the US announced a 1.8 billion, $1 billion aid dollars package with Patriot missiles batteries. You remember when he went to Congress, uh, everybody put their both hands on his shoulders, on his head, uh, everywhere, and he acted like he was um, Jesus' second coming. January 23. January 13th, the day of Solidar, 
was captured by Russian forces after fierce fighting in a battle of Solidar. Ukraine denied the capture, but they were only defending the northwestern edge of the city. Solidar is just north of Bakhmut. From January 14th on, many Western nations announced they would send main battle tanks to Ukraine, a major escalation in this war. The UK announced it would send Challenger 2 tanks. France announced they would send Leclerc tanks. Poland announced the same day that they would send 14 Leopard tanks to Ukraine, regardless of German approval. Germany announced it would send 14 Leopard 2 tanks, in, in addition to, 80, to the 88 already sent by various nations. Comrade, you notice one thing? 1488, it reminds you of something? It's, it's a Nazi symbol, okay? The United States announced it would send 31 M1 Abrams tanks. All right, and with that, we're gonna stop for our first round of questions and comments. Comrades, this is so incredible. I'm enjoying the class. What the comrade just said about the 1488, can you believe that? They could have said 92 tanks. They could have said 80 tanks. But over multiple times last year, they did 1488. And I want to point all of our comrades to go onto the People's School social media on the YouTube channel or SoundCloud. We have uploaded from Barry Latucci, a, uh, actually a presentation the comrade gave at uh, U.S. Friends of the Soviet People um, panel at the left forum in 2015 on Ukraine. Wow, Comrade Barry is prophetic. And then Comrade Kayla from New York has an, also an excellent video, part two. And as I'm sitting here in this class, New Outlook Publishers has just come out with the Donbass Cowboy. It looks amazing, it's amazing. I mean, I've already read it, but I'm reading it again. And then on the screen, I'm watching Patrick Lancaster, everybody should go, go look at Patrick Lancaster. He's a North American who lives in Donbass for the last eight years and just does videos. Comrades, I think we're on hit list now. Uh, I've got weird messages coming to me in Telegram. I saw my LinkedIn is getting searches. 90 seconds. That, that means we should keep up the good work. If we're getting attacked, that means we're doing good work. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrades, it's very important to understand the military situation that has taken place right now. The Russians had to withdraw from Kherson due to a problem of the Ukrainians. They were going to basically destroy a dam, which would have flooded the entire region and would have made retreat very difficult. During the Great Patriotic War, even when our comrades in the Red Army were winning, they also had to do strategic resolves during this war. Russia has, is starting to take this more seriously. They have called up mobilizations of hundreds of thousands of men. Um, and even though they are still calling it a special military operation, I think that um, in the next coming months, we are tr truly going to see um, some massive events happening on this front. Um, and furthermore, in terms of the tanks, these tanks are not invincible. Hitler, during the end of World War II, had Wunderwaffe, meaning wonder weapons that he claimed would win the war. These were the V-2 rocket systems. Um, these systems, although they killed people, they did not win the war for Hitler. These tanks will not save the Kiev regime or Zelensky. 
Um, and frankly, they're going to meet the fate of other German tanks um, 80 years ago that went into the fields of Ukraine. They will be ash. In Syria, the Leopard 2 tanks were destroyed very easily by both um, the forces of the Syrian government and Islamist insurgents. These big cats guzzle a lot of fuel, and they're not invincible. Thank you. I don't usually like hypotheticals, and any smart person shouldn't. But how much faster would this have been over, or how much less bloody if if the U.S. and the West had stopped just trickling in tanks and weapons? That's basically it. Thank you. All right. I can briefly respond to that. I mean, if the West hadn't sent in the types of weapons that they have over the you know past year, um, which has been at first it was what old uh, tanks, basically Warsaw Pact nations or former Warsaw nations had in their arsenal. And then as it went on, it was artillery systems, uh, Patriot missile batteries, main battle tanks. Put simply, I mean, if if Ukraine hadn't got this from the West, they, they'd be in a lot worse position. Um, but like comrades said, even with these weapons that they're getting now, they're not invincible and they can be defeated. Yeah, um, there's this... Uh, a commentator um, made this analogy, but um, everyone here has heard of the game Russian Roulette. It's when you put one round in the chamber of a revolver, spin it, and then put it to your head. There's a new game that NATO's playing called NATO Roulette. It's when you put all your bullets in this chamber, you spin it, and then put it to your head. That's what they're doing to their current stockpiles. NATO is running out of ammunition. They're running out of tanks. And they're running out of elite mercenaries that are getting chewed up. Um, what Russia has done essentially with this war has created, they, they, Russia has created basically a trap for NATO. And if NATO keeps expending its current rates of ammunition, tanks, armor, there's not going to be anything of NATO left to defend it, continental Europe. So it's a strategic dilemma for NATO. And it frankly is suicidal for the economy of Germany, which was reliant on Russian oil. And it's not doing the US military that many favors either. Um, the U.S. military promised 31 um, Abrams tanks. We don't have those tanks. We haven't produced them yet. So we kind of used that promise of tanks to basically push the Germans into sending over their armor vehicles. But we don't have the tanks. And unless they are produced within a year and then shipped very quickly, the war could be over in a year, comrades. I'd like to add something to it. You have the floor, comrade. It would have been much, much easier, less bloodier, much faster, much quicker if Putin did what he did, not in February 2022, but in May 2014, okay? At the time, remember, Crimea fell with one death, one casualty. 75% of the Ukrainian army went over to the Russian side or surrendered with all their weapons, okay? And... Um, in 2014, the Ukrainian army was one of the worst in Europe. In 2022, eight years later, different story. One of the best in Europe. Okay, so yeah, it would have been much better eight years before, but that's a past. Nothing we can do about it. All right. Thank you, comrade. Um, thank you. This class has been super enlightening. Um, my question was slightly directed with what um, comrade said, said earlier. 
question was, has Russia completed that uh, partial mobilization I knew they were talking about? And another question I had was a lot of the um, weapon systems that they said they were going to give over to the Ukrainians, don't those also are like real specialty systems that you have to have specialty training for and that takes a while and then is it still the only 30 percent are getting to the troops there or the rest is just disappearing wherever thank you all right the forces are, are being trained as we speak the russians are continually training these reservists these reservists are not green they have fought in conflicts either in afghanistan in Georgia or and in many of the other post-Soviet conflicts. Um, and yes, they're being trained. And I suspect when the Russian offensive begins, they will be, you know, they won't be the ones leading the offensive, but they'll be the people forming up on the flanks to secure the flanks from any possible Ukrainian counterattack. In terms of the equipment that is being sent to Ukraine, um, I pity any Ukrainian or NATO logistician officer. It's a nightmare. I mean, you have Warsaw Pact equipment. You have old equipment from the West, from the Cold War. You have different types of ammunition, different calibers of guns, artillery, tanks. It's a nightmare. And that's not even including the black market, which is a considerable factor in this conflict. Um, we are seeing weapons that have been shipped to Ukraine ending up in Africa in the hands of Islamist terrorist organizations. We're seeing a uh, cartel and, and you know gangs in Latin America use the type of uh, rocket systems that the Ukrainians are getting in terms of man pad systems, which are man air portable um, systems that shoot down helicopters. It is a nightmare. Um, and it is very bad for the future security of not only Ukraine, but all of Europe and the world at large. All right. Thank you, comrade. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. All right, I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute. It's good we have in a class like this here in mainstream media. Every presents everything from a one-sided point of view. And by the way, before I continue, Zelensky met or addressed Congress on the 21st of December. It was not the 24th of December, just to let you know that, because the slide said the 24th of December. Okay, now, playing devil's advocate, how can you account for the fact that what we're reading in mainstream media says have been forcible deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia, being forced adoptions of Ukrainian children to Russian parents. Also, alleged torture chambers have been found in any of these uh, areas that Ukraine has taken back from Russia. These are the kind of reports we're hearing on mainstream media. Uh, so how can you account for these types of reports that we're hearing on mainstream media about torturing uh, Ukrainians by Russia? We're not talking about Ukrainian military, we're talking about civilians. And also the latest video where it showed a Ukrainian POW smoking a cigarette. And then I guess there were some Russians behind him. He was a POW from what I understand. Said, Slava Ukraine, glory to Ukraine. Next thing you know, he's killed. And this, you know, appeared all over social media. So seconds. questions are, how can we account to that sort of thing? That's all I got. Thank you. Remember the adage from a long time ago during the Vietnam War, the New York Times does not print all the news that's fit to print. There was a slogan that the New York Times had, we print everything. And we found out in the SDS that I was in at the time, 
we coined the phrase, the New York Times prints only what it wants to print. The media under capitalism has a role. Most of us as communists know that. Their role is to mislead. So because the media says something in orchestra light, doesn't mean it's true. The media was very clear that there were weapons of mass destruction. We all remember that. It was a lie. It was an orchestrated lie. But unfortunately, many people believed it. And it got us into a war, which we're still in, by the way. Do you remember anybody when they said that um, there were factories that were being bombed that made baby formula? Does anybody remember this or am I the only one who remembered it? It was turned out to be a lie. But you see, it got the humanitarian feeling of people, oh, this is terrible. Beware of everything the media tells us. Beware of it. 90 seconds. I, I want to stress that we've been in too many wars in this country that the media orchestrated like a band uh, an orchestra, they orchestrated everything. So I want to mention that. All war is horror. An anti-fascist war is horror too. But it has to be done. It's what we call in the communist movement, a just war when it's against fascism. We have reports that the mass media doesn't tell us that our people have been tortured and killed en masse. By our people, I'm not talking about Russian soldiers. I'm talking about Ukrainian communists. That's what I consider our people. And so therefore the media doesn't tell us this. Does that mean it does not happening? No, old war is horror. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I believe you were referring to the Nayira testimony before the Gulf War where they were saying that they were uh, throwing babies out of incubators yes. on the floor. And it ended up being the daughter of a U.S. ambassador that said it. And that's just a, another example of manufacturing consent over the years. Uh, yeah, my, my question is, what kind of sources are you getting the information on the PowerPoint from? I'm just curious. Yeah, so it was a combination of both uh, different Russian uh, sources, uh, various ones, RT, uh, Sputnik, uh, different telegram channels, uh, as well as uh, just generally, uh, there's a timeline that you can find on Wikipedia, which obviously we know Wikipedia isn't the best source, but they have more sources beyond that. And so that's how I made this class. Uh, later on in the presentation, there's going to be some statistics. Uh, part of that is from a Wikipedia page that uh, lists basically the top suppliers of Ukraine. The other one is from Statista, and it has a couple of different sources there for different countries. One thing that I'll say was on this class, um, unfortunately, the war in Ukraine is a heavily, heavily propagandized thing. And there's a lot of, you know, pro-Russian or pro-Donbass sources that get hidden from us. So it was kind of hard to find stuff that wasn't pro-Western, but we were able to do it to some extent. So I hope that that answers your question. Yeah, hi. Uh, my question is about uh, the Nord Stream pipeline. So at least to my understanding, you know, I can understand 
the Western countries, you know, America mostly, you know, they want to they want to sell their sort of freedom gas to Europe, and they don't want they don't want Russia to sell their gas. So I can understand that, but I don't, what I don't understand is, is is why why does Germany why do they allow this? You know, it just seems like they're just totally, you know, subservient, and uh, it just I I, th- I thought Germany was like the economic powerhouse of Europe, and they still just go along with with the West. It just doesn't really make sense to me. You know, thank you. That's my question. Yeah, Germany is member of EU, of NATO, and those two organizations are lap dogs of the United States from its birth, NATO and EU, both. So, you know, that's totally understandable. If the master does something, you cannot go against him. So, uh, yeah, Schultz, he knows that uh, Biden bombed the Nord Stream. He knows that. Everybody knows that. It's obvious. But he's not going to say anything. He'll lie about it. No problem. The last sovereign German nation died in 1989 when the Berlin Wall, the anti-fascist protection wall, fell. The very next day, comrades, there were neo-Nazis marching through East Berlin. Don't kid yourself. West Germany, which was an American puppet state, which was created um, from a mixture of, uh, you know, the old Nazi bureaucracy, and other corporate leaders in Germany. This leader, this this state did not just, just merge with the German Democratic Part Republic. It was annexed, it, it annexed the German Democratic Republic. Ever since then, Germany has been a complete pushover to NATO. It has been, it, Germany is also still occupied by US troops um, and rights in terms of not only LGBT, but also labor rights, women's rights, um, the rights of workers to organize, the ability for communists to organize in Germany have all taken huge back, back steps ever since the counter-revolution and the annexation of the German Democratic Republic. For And this has been geopolitics for centuries. The Americans and the British in particular hate it when Germany and Russia cooperate. It is the one thing the, the imperialists are terrified of because if Russia and Germany cooperated economically, it would mean that basically Europe would become sovereign and it wouldn't be beholden to Atlanticist or capitalist influence. Thank you, comrade. I'm going to go ahead and just take uh, two or three more hands because we do have a bit of the presentation to get back to. A couple of comrades already mentioned things that I wanted to say about how a lot of the equipment that we're sending over there, it's not just as simple as sending more tanks and stuff because you have to train people to use the equipment and you have to maintain the equipment and the fighting force of ukraine is becoming this mod podge of a bunch of different pieces of equipment so the only thing but that was pretty much mentioned so the only thing that i wanted to add is i saw a news story the other day about how there's an artillery plant in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that has been churning out 11,000 artillery shells a month, and they're being sent directly to uh, Ukraine. And that was just, that just blew me away. It's like the most production that this plant has been doing since like World War II. So that's all I wanted to share. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, a while back in the class, a a comrade mentioned that the war could be over in one year. And I was wondering, 
if we know what that would mean. You know, I've heard the phrase denazification a few times, but it's unclear to me exactly what that means concretely. Does it mean re-legalizing the Communist Party in Ukraine? Does it mean forcible removal of Zelensky and his party from power? What is denazification? What is the end of the war? Right. I would say it's regime change, you know. Uh, that regime was put in place by US, NATO, EU in 2014. And uh, Russia is going to make it right. It's what they want to do. Whether they succeed or not, we don't know. We sure hope that they do. That regime got to go. It's a, it's a fascist, living fascist regime. It's got to go. It's a threat to Russia. It's an um, existential threat to Russia. So it's national security. It's denazidol against the Donbass. It's got to go. That's the goal of the operation. Denazification, demilitarization. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, um, but another thing, too, is like, you know, they have to undo the coup government. You know, uh, they have to make sure that uh, Ukraine is never going to join NATO, which, you know, it's a uh, it's never going to happen. But it's talked about a lot right now. It's uh, they're hopeful to do this um, demilitarization, denazification and greater cooperation between Russia and Ukraine is like the end goal. You know, if that happens, we just have to stay. All right. Thank you, comrade. In regards to the legalization of the Communist Party, comrades, within uh, Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donetsk, Luhansk, the Communist Party of Ukraine is back. They've been organizing in those areas under the Kiev regime and the territories controlled by the regime put in power by NATO liberals and fascists in Kiev. The Communist Party is banned. They are murdered by fascist street gangs. Um, their leadership is arrested and is being tortured by the SBU as we speak. Um, you know, th this is a matter of the life and death for our Ukrainian comrades. And, you know, we need to view it as such. Um, the only way that Ukraine is going to ever have a government that isn't controlled by NATO and isn't controlled by fascists is with a denazification, which means the end of the current Kiev regime, new elections, and an actual sovereign Ukraine that you know isn't in the isn't NATO influenced or fascist influenced. Yes, I wanted to uh, go back to what our comic rumor was saying, playing devil's advocate with uh, how the media and how we see sources over here is heavily, quite obviously, biased towards the uh, Ukrainian side. And the uh, problem that we have is that we live not only in the Imperial Corps and in the Western Corps, but we also live in probably one of the most unprecedented eras of information warfare, where it's not just that we are being, uh, you know, cut off from Russian sources or that it's being uh, completely exercised from uh, our ears, you know, as censorship, but the fact that we're basically being flooded with so much information that uh, quite simply put that uh, when we try and look for sources, our own internal biases, which feed into the algorithm of uh, capitalist information and networking, will basically feed us information that we're looking for and not necessarily the truth. And the problem with that is that basically means that uh, capitalist media has uh, pretty much full dominance over what people see, how they present things, and uh, how uh, evidence is presented as well. The most uh, classic case I can think of off the top of my head is that uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Mr. Patrick Lancaster, the journalist that Comet mentioned earlier. 
over in the Donetsk region. When he was in, a, I believe, a Mariupol, uh, covering the city on the front lines, or somewhere in the villages nearby, he discovered in the basement of his school a, a dead woman who was uh, mutilated by the Azov Battalion, and he really goes into the graphic details of it. But he shows all the Nazi symbology that they quite literally carved into the poor woman and said, this is absolutely barbaric, what they're doing to the people in these occupied zones. And then later on, I saw the same image, same person talking about it a little bit, but, you know, muscles. two minutes. And they're basically covering up the fact that it was Azov Battalion. They're saying Russians are mutilating women in the occupied regions and presenting it as if it's the Russians doing it. And quite simply put, it's information warfare, and we have to be truly careful what we're listening to all the time. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. So like I said, we're going to go ahead and jump back to the presentation now. We can go ahead and start on the second section. Okay. From February 22 to March 23. February 23. As the war approached its uh, first year anniversary, it was becoming evident that this conflict is heating up to an international conflict. Embargoes and price ceilings on Russian petroleum imposed by the G7 went into effect this month. On February 9th, Zelensky alleged Russia is planning a coup in Moldova. Moldova, you see on the map, is right between Ukraine and, um, I mean, excuse me, Transnistria, right between Ukraine and Moldova, okay? On February 10th, 35 nations demanded Russia and Belarus be banned from the 24 Olympics in Paris. How about that? And Ukraine said they would boycott if not. Well, they better boycott. On February 20th, Joe Biden visited Kiev. On February 21st, Russia pulled out of the New START treaty with the US. The Russian Ministry of Defense, Shogu, claimed that Ukraine was preparing to invade Transnistria. That's what I was talking about. The little strip of land in between both where there is an important uh, Russian garrison. And by the way, they use all the symbols of the USSR, hammer, sickle, you name it. Uh, Biden gave a speech in Poland on February 21st, 23. In it, hypocritically, accuses Russia of being hell-bent on violence, starting wars and imposing their will on others, something the United States has done countless times since World War II, many times with Biden's direct involvement, just like in Yugoslavia, 1999. Biden was a head a neocon at the time. Our commitment is to the people of Ukraine and the future of Ukraine. A Ukraine is free, sovereign and democratic, that was the dream of those who declared Ukraine's independence more than 30 years ago, who led the Orange Revolution and the Revolution of Dignity, who braved ice and fire in the Badan and the Heavenly Hundred who died there, and those who continue still to root out Kremlin's efforts to corrupt, coerce, and control. It's a dream for those Ukrainian patriots who fought for years against Russia's aggressions in the Donbass. And the heroes who've given everything, given their lives in the service of the beloved Ukraine. 
I was honored to visit their memorial in Kyiv yesterday to pay tribute to the sacrifice of those who lost their lives, standing alongside President Zelensky. The United States and our partners stand with Ukraine's teachers, its hospital staff, its emergency responders, the workers in cities across Ukraine are fighting to keep the power on in the face of Russia's cruel bombardment. We stand with the millions of refugees of this war who found a welcome in Europe and the United States, particularly here in Poland. Ordinary people all across Europe did whatever they could to help and continue to do so. Polish businesses, civil society, cultural leaders, including the First Lady of Poland, who is here tonight, have led with the heart and determination, showcasing all that's good about the human spirit. Madam First Lady, we love you. Thank you all. I'll never forget last year visiting with refugees from Ukraine who had just arrived in Warsaw, seeing their faces, exhausted and afraid, holding their children so close, wherein they might never see their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, their sisters again. In that darkest moment of their lives, you, the people of Poland, offered them safety and light. You embraced them. You literally embraced them. I watched. I watched the looks on their faces. Meanwhile, together we made sure that Russia is paying the price for its abuses. We continue to maintain the largest sanction regime ever imposed in any country in history. And we're going to announce more sanctions this week together with our partners. We'll hold accountable those who are responsible for this war. And we'll seek justice for the war crimes and crimes against humanity continuing to be committed by the Russians. You know, there is much for us to be proud of over the all that we have achieved together this past year. But we have to be honest and clear-eyed as we look at the year ahead. The defense of freedom is not the work of a day or of a year. It's always difficult. It's always important. As Ukraine continues to defend itself against the Russian onslaught and launch counteroffensive of its own, there will continue to be hard and very bitter days, victories and tragedies. But Ukraine is still for the fight ahead. And the United States, together with our allies and partners, are going to continue to have Ukraine's back as it defends itself. Next year, I will host every member of NATO for our 2024 summit in the United States. Together, We'll celebrate the 75th anniversary of the strongest defensive alliance in the history of the world, NATO. And, and let there be no doubt, the commitment of the United States to our NATO alliance and Article 5 is rock solid. And every member of NATO knows it, and Russia knows it as well. An attack against one is attack against all. It's a sacred oath, sacred oath to defend every inch of NATO territory. All right. And I just wanted to show that, by the way, uh, not to, you know, give any praise to Biden or anything, but just because you can see how hypocritical it was uh, talking about these refugees from the war. And meanwhile, think about all the, the different wars that he helped cause that caused all this kind of destruction that is just being ignored here.
Um, so that's why I wanted to show that. Um, this next one is on the same day Putin gave a speech at the Kremlin about the war, uh, which was his address to the nation in which he reiterates why the invasion happened, why Russia took the actions it has, and where the war is at today. Like to repeat, they started the war. And we used the force in order to stop it. Those who planned a new attack on Donetsk, on Donbass, on Lugansk, they clearly understood that the next objective is strike against Sevastopol and Crimea. We understood this and they are again in Kiev talking directly uh, about uh, their plans and we knew that already. We protect people and protect their homes and the objectives of the West uh, is uh, infinite power. They spend $150 billion to support militarily Kiev regime. To compare uh, this, to put this into perspective, in 2021-2022, uh, big seven countries uh, provided to the poorest countries only 60 billion uh, aid. Also, they and in exchange for that 60 billion, they require complete, sub, complete submission to their will. With this, the flow of money to finance the war is not stopping, and they continue supplying uh, means to provide uh, coups in other countries. And at the recent security conference, there was an endless flow of accusations against Russia, and this was done, it seems, in order for everyone to forget that over the last 10 years, it was the West who opened, uh, who released the genie from the bottle as a result of wars. We did not come up with these figures. Uh, these figures are provided by them as a result of uh, wars uh, that were started by United States since 2021. About 900,000 people died and millions became refugees and they're trying to delete this from the memory of uh, people. They're trying to pretend this did not happen, but nobody forgot that. The people's tragedy is not important to them, and they're betting trillions, trillions of dollars, and they are trying to continue robbing everyone else, and they're covering themselves with words of democracy and values. They're trying to label uh, other countries and publicly insult them. And they are creating that image of enemy within their own countries in order to divert attention from corruption scandals within their own countries. They are diverting attention from the growing uh, social economic uh, problems. I would like to remind you that in 1930s, Western countries opened the path for uh, Nazi Germany uh, to develop and in this century they they did this to Ukraine and anyone who knows history and, uh, knows that this goes back to the 19th uh, century 
uh, Austrian Hungarian uh, Empire, and this was they only had the only uh, single goal to separate these territories from um, their historic ties with our country. There's nothing new. Everything is repeating. History keeps repeating. Okay, March uh, 23 on where things stand. On March 4th, Ukrainian forces began withdrawing from Bakhmut, beginning the end of the conflict and Russian victory, which will also allow Russia to make more gains in the West and take back territory lost in the counter-offensive. Ukraine is reportedly planning to invade Transnistria, which would open up a new front in the war and may draw Moldova. Ukrainian Air Force pilots are being trained in the US on how to fly F-16s fighter jet. China has proposed a peace plan which calls for a ceasefire and negotiations that would respect the sovereignty of nations and end the Cold War mentality. Ukraine has said it awaits details. Biden and Blinken, the Secretary of State, doubt China's, doubt China's sincerity about the plan, and China has not taken a definitive stance on the conflict as of yet. And of course, we have a picture on the side. Or this is just from Al Jazeera, but it shows as of March 5th, which was earlier this week, uh, where things stood in Ukraine in terms of the map. Um, of course, they're making uh, good gains when it comes towards uh, the Bakhmut area, um, which could be another turning tide in the war uh, since the counteroffensives uh, last year. So... We have an article wrote by a comrade in California for the Daily Worker. I can go ahead and read this uh, for time. Uh, so let me go ahead and get these meeting controls out of the way. In November 1943, the Red Army liberated Kiev, led by Nikolai Batutin, a Soviet general who played a major role in the Stalingrad and Kursk victories. From there on, the Wehrmacht was in full retreat. That is when the Third Reich assigned a mission to Bandera's troops organized in the UPA. Stand behind and fight the Red Army. The UPA scored its first victory in February 1944 when it ambushed Vatutin and mortally wounded him. In 1945, the Third Reich was finally buried in Berlin, but the stay-behind army of Bandera remained in western Ukraine, thence the Fourth Reich was born. This wasn't lost on U.S. intelligence, who saw in Ukrainian nationalism the ultimate tool in combating the USSR and rolling back socialism in Eastern Europe. From now on, Ukrainian nationalism would only grow stronger with the U.S. and NATO fingerprints all over it. It must be noted that in March 1991, when a referendum took place in the Soviet republics asking people if they wanted to maintain the USSR, Western Ukraine was about 80% opposed, while Eastern Ukraine was about 80% in favor. In 2004, during the so-called Orange Revolution, Ukrainian nationalism emerged on the public scene for the first time as Western Ukrainians were out in the streets in big numbers. In 2004, 
color revolution was bloodless, but it was a re general rehearsal of things to come 10 years later. In 2014, the Fourth Reich finally came to power in Kiev, covered in blood. Financed largely by the US is Victoria Newland, special envoy of the Obama's White House and main architect of the coup, would admit later on, when she declared the US had spent $5 billion to, quote, bring democracy to Ukraine. The new regime was a fascist one. Its first act was to burn alive 50 trade unionists in Odessa on May 2nd, 2014. Then the same month, it launched a so-called anti-terrorist operation against the Donbass, who had erupted in an anti-fascist uprising against the Kiev regime under the slogan, we are Vatutin, we are Bandera. Note that the Donbass uprising was sparked in the city of Donetsk by the local communist party section who called on the people to come out in mass to protect Lenin's statue standing on the main square. The regime installed by US imperialism in 2014 is living fascism. It advocates Ukro-Nazi historical figures such as Bandera and Shukovich and glorifies them as heroes of Ukraine. For eight long years, that regime carried on a genocidal war against the Donbass that killed over 14,000 people. Ever since May 2014, Russian communists had demanded from Russia's bourgeois government the recognition of the Donbass republics and military support for their war of national liberation. Finally, on February 21st, 2022, Russian President Putin signed the proposition to recognize the two republics introduced in the Duma by the KPRF. The special military operation followed three days later. It had the support of all communists in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. It must be noted that on February 17th at the Munich Security Conference, President Zelensky publicly declared with US Vice President Kay Harris at his side that he intended for Ukraine to reacquire nuclear weapons. It clearly presented Russia with a threat to its national security, no different than Finland's artillery within cannon fire range of Leningrad in November 1939. The Finnish government flatly rejected Stalin's reasonable security proposals and war became inevitable. Just the same, in December 2021, Lavrov presented A. Blinken with a draft treaty to ensure the security of Russia and NATO states. The core of that draft treaty was a, the commitment to stop any further extension of NATO and to inscribe Ukraine's neutrality. These proposals, which would have carried, which would have guaranteed peace, were rejected by Blinken. Just like in November 1939 with Finland, war with Ukraine became inevitable. As all Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarusian communists do, we hold the position that Russia and the Donbass republics are conducting a just war, an anti-fascist war, a war of national liberation. U.S. neocons, including Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, and Ben Hodges, former commander of U.S. Army Europe, have declared that one of the goals of NATO was to decolonize Russia and dismember it, such as was done with Yugoslavia in the 90s. As it has been known for a year now, the international communist movement has been divided into two camps, the camp that supports Russia's military operation and the camp that opposes it. We belong to the first camp. Let us see the arguments of the communist parties who do not support Russia and the People's Republics. Basically, 
They believe the war in Ukraine is an imperialist war between two imperialist blocs, and under no circumstances can communists take sides between two imperialist robbers fighting each other for the bounty on the back of the working classes of each country. These parties are copy-pasting the positions of revolutionary communists led by Lenin's Bolsheviks at the start of World War I in 1914. But dialectics teach us that just like in nature, where you never swim in, twice in the same river, human societies are in constant motion. Objective conditions change with time and space, and communists must act accordingly. A slogan correct at one time and in one place may not be corrected another time and in another place. Communists must never fall for sloganeering. In February 1918, Lenin faced opposition with the so-called left communists. The occasion was the Brest-Litovsk Treaty with Germany. Soviet Russia was presented with extremely harsh conditions, such as the complete loss of Ukraine. Left communists advocated against the peace treaty and put forward the slogan of revolutionary war against German imperialism, taking the example of the 1792 Revolutionary War of the French Revolution against allied feudal European states. But Soviet Russia had no army yet to do the fighting. So the slogan of revolutionary war sounded good, but was totally detached from re reality, empty and an exercise in phrase -monging. That is when Lenin published an article titled The Revolutionary Phrase. Here is an ex excerpt. By revolutionary phrase making, we mean the repetition of revolutionary slogans irrespective of objective circumstances at a given turn of events and the given state of affairs obtaining at the time. The slogans are superb, alluring, intoxicating, but there are no grounds for them, such as the nat nature of the revolutionary phrase. So today regarding the current Ukraine conflict, we are seeing a group of communist parties engaging in revolutionary phrase-making when repeating the slogans of 1914. 2014 was not 1914, when the US-NATO-EU bloc put in place an openly fascist regime in Kiev and committed genocide against Donbass, who rose up for a just war of national liberation. How could any honest communist compare with the imperialist war between Entente and Central Powers of 1914? when after eight long years of waiting, bourgeois Russia finally decided to agree with Russian communists' demands for the recognition of the People's Republics and for military involvement on their side. How could any honest communist oppose it? Because Russia is a bourgeois state? From Marx, Engels to Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Kim Il-sung, and many more, real communists have always known how to look at objective reality in a dialectical way how to point at the main enemy, and how to act in the best interests of the working class. In 1849, Engels stood shoulder to shoulder with German bourgeois on the barricades of the Palatina to fight feudalism. When American Colonel Robbins floated the idea to Lenin that the US could provide weapons and food if Soviet Russia would keep fighting Germany, Lenin agreed, even if the proposal was shelved by the US Department of State who instead decided to send troops to Siberia a few months later. Stalin attempted a treaty of mutual assistance with Anglo-French for six and a half years. When he realized they were pushing Hitler eastward, he didn't hesitate to sign a non-aggression treaty with Germany and stayed out of the war for the time being, 
until a year and a half later, when the alliance with bourgeois states Stalin had been looking for came to life on its own. Mao fought a bloody war with the Chinese nationalists of the Kuomintang from 1927 to 1937. When Japan invaded, he had no problem to ally with Chinese bourgeoisie to fight the main enemy. Of course, when Japan was defeated in 1945, Mao then turned his guns again on the US-backed KMT with the help of the USSR. So in 2023, why should communists support Russia? Because if Russia loses and NATO wins, it will be another historical defeat 32 years after the end of the USSR. Fascism would reign supreme in Ukraine, Donbass would be wiped out. Crimea would turn into NATO's unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Black Sea, Russia's only warm water access. Hero City Sebastopol would become a major US Navy base. Russia would be dismembered. Russian communists would be banned and persecuted. Tens of thousands of Soviet Red Army heroes monuments would be smashed. All communist symbols would be made illegal as they already are in most NATO countries. History would be rewritten like it has been in Ukraine for the past nine years. The sacrifices of 27 million Soviet citizens would be in vain. Their honor and memory would be stepped on, insulted and shredded to pieces. A return to socialism would be made impossible for many decades. NATO would feel energized like never before, even more than it did after 1991. NATO would turn into a Mack truck going full speed with no brakes. NATO would act like the master of the universe. Next on the list would be China, of course, as Taiwan is Chinese for Ukraine. Would any of that be beneficial to the world's working class? Of course not. Any communist with a normally functioning brain would agree. Hold on just a second. If Russia and the Donbass republics win, it can only be positive for the working class. Ukraine will be delivered from fascism. The Ukrainian Communist Party, that was a powerful force before the Ukro-Nazi regime, will once again operate freely. In Russia proper, the influence and popularity of the communist parties will keep growing as they had been the spearhead of Russia's involvement in Ukraine from day one. The prestige of the USSR, of its historical leaders, will increase tremendously as the victory against the Fourth Reich will be celebrated and viewed like a continuation of May 9th, 1945. With a Russian victory, the return to socialism will become a possibility. China's position will be reinforced immensely. The NATO-US-EU bloc weakened by its defeat won't even think of turning Taiwan into another Ukraine. The peaceful reunification of the Taiwan province from its motherland will become very likely, with Taiwanese people possibly bringing to power a government friendly to China. Real communists, the ones who don't indulge in revolutionary phrase-making, can only recognize how positive a Russian victory would be for the world working class. Yes, thank you, Cameron. I was just gonna say that a term that we should all be familiar with is a term called psychological operations or PSYOPs. It's a way that the US employs a lot of different people in this particular field in both the military and through the intelligence agencies. And we know from interviews conducted with former Central Intelligence Agency operatives that they have paid journalists in the past to promote articles that they knew were fake. 
he promoted an article uh, back in the 70s that uh, some Cuban soldiers had raped these nuns. And it was printed in the Zambian Times in Africa because it's where the Cubans were training these soldiers. And it was totally fake that they get it reprinted through UPI, the New York Times, and several other major publications. And they continue to do this to this day. They continue to use these types of influence operations. That's the reason why the person in charge of content management at TikTok is a former psychop, psyops person who worked for NATO. That's the reason why if you look at the social media companies, they all employ former intelligence people because they want to influence how um, how the U.S. population views American foreign policy. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, just a couple of points. Uh, with Comrade Singh, they were mentioning, um, how do we get our sources? What makes our sources better than anyone else's? And one of the things that we do is definitely invite speakers from all over the world to tell us what is really going on. And every single one of those speakers, it's usually an eye opener. So uh, I would just commend that when you see that we're having webinars and seminars and we've got a speaker to join in, if you really want to get it from the people that are right in the middle of what is happening in their particular country, whether it be Peru, Syria, India, whatever. That's the first thing. Second thing, someone asked what's going to happen after the war. All right, it's not going to be pretty. All right, what's going to happen after the war is the fascists will be hurrying over to Poland and they'll be uh, welcomed there. And also Georgia, which is on the other side, uh, Russia, Georgia, uh, many of their folks are getting trained in the Ukraine so that they can also come back to Georgia having been experienced in this kind of fascist war, and so that they can also topple their their government in Georgia. So it's not going to be pretty no matter how it ends. I just felt it's important for people to know that. Thanks. Thank you. So my question is, we all know that the mainstream media is largely the propaganda machine of Washington, D.C. How do we, from an objective point of view, decipher between what's just nothing more than fake propaganda and what's actually real news? In other words, how do we sort the junk news from what we actually need to be reading? And how do we cut through all the garbage that they're throwing in our faces to prevent us from seeing the truth? Uh, thank you, comrade. I can go ahead and respond to that. Uh, first off, we need to understand that most likely anything that the mainstream media is reporting when it comes to Ukraine is going to be completely littered with falsehoods, uh, misinterpretation of what's going on there, and outright lies. Um, I, I do think that it is necessary to uh, keep track of what the West is saying just so that we know what the narrative they're trying to push is so that we can combat it. Um, of course, the best sources that we can get are the sources from that region, from the people in the Donbass, from 
even Russian state media to a certain extent and to go ahead and push that out there. It, it, you know, it's very hard for us as American communists to know exactly what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. But I do think that we can uh, get closer to the truth uh, if we literally try to get it closer from the geographic source itself. So I hope that answered your question. So the what I wanted to show, and I definitely wanted to get in here before we hung up tonight, was the statistics that I've got here. So these are from uh, both Statista and Wikipedia, and Wikipedia has the sources on their website for this. So first is the statistics on personnel and casualties. So here are some personnel stats from Statista. And by the way, the NATO stats are as of 22, uh, the uh, 2022, uh, Russia and Ukraine stats are actually 2023 stats. So total estimated personnel, Russia has 1.3 million, Ukraine has 500,000, NATO has 5.4 million. In terms of active soldiers, Russia has 830,900, Ukraine has about 200,000, NATO has about 3.4 million. For the reserve forces, Russia has about 250,000, Ukraine has about 250,000, NATO has about 1.3 million. And for paramilitary units, Russia has about 250,000, Ukraine has only about 50,000, NATO has about 738,700. Uh, in terms of casualties, uh, these these are uh, different uh, reporting, by the way. It shows you the different sources and who's claiming what. For Russian military losses, the Russian reporting says that 5,937 have been killed. Uh, BBC Russia and Media Zona which is the uh, media of the anti-Russian uh, group that's inside Russia, I think it's something along the lines of, of Pussy Riot or something like that, claims 32,000 killed. The U.S. estimate is 200,000 killed, which is definitely a lot higher than anything that's being reported from there. And Ukraine reports that 153,770 have been killed. In terms of Ukrainian military losses, the Russian reporting says 61,207 have been killed. The U.S. European Commission estimates say 100,000 plus have been killed. And Ukraine's reporting says only 13,000 plus have been killed. In terms of civilian losses, the U.N. reports that 8,101 people have been killed. Uh, the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic's reporting says that 1,252 have been killed. The U.S. estimate is that 40,000 have been killed, and the Ukraine reporting is that 9,000 to 16,502 have been killed. So that you can see when it comes to the casualty stats, it is all over the place. The U.S. likes to highball all of it. Uh, the Russian estimates are usually the lowest, uh, but so you can see how it's very hard to get a, a concrete idea on how many you know deaths there have actually been in Ukraine. Uh, the next statistics are on equipment and foreign aid. Again, these stats on the uh, left and the right this time are from Statista. So for total aircraft, Russia has 4,182. Ukraine has 312. NATO has 20,723. For total helicopters, Russia has 1,531. Ukraine has 113. NATO has 8,485. For total armored vehicles, Russia has 151,000, 
441. Ukraine has 37,000. NATO has 115,855. Uh, so weirdly on that, Russia actually outnumbers NATO. Uh, in terms of total military ships, and this is in terms of naval power, Russia has 598 ships. Ukraine has 38. NATO has 2,049. Uh, nuclear weapons, Russia has 5,977. Ukraine, of course, has zero. NATO has 6,065. Remember, that's the United States combined with the United Kingdom, uh, France, and I think those are the only uh, other nuclear armed states in NATO. Uh, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. Then we have the estimated value of weapons deliveries to Ukraine from January to November 2022 by country. So the top one, of course, is the United States with about 18 billion, 182 million. $200,000. Germany is second with $4,127,890,000. United Kingdom has $3,509,480,000. Poland gave $2,183,500,000. Canada gave $1,207,000,000. Netherlands gave $837,050,000. Sweden gave $484,570,000. Italy gave $470,840,000. Latvia gave $299,640,000. And Turkey gave $275,000,000. When it comes to the alleged military aid to Russia, uh, China is alleged to have given navigation systems and fighter jet parts uh, to Russia. That's from Forbes. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. And for all these three sources, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, Iran has supposedly provided aircraft, drones, ballistic missiles, and oil, according to the Washington Institute. And the DPRK, People's Korea, uh, supplied artillery shells and rockets. And that's from U.S. intelligence, but with no presented evidence. I only included that in there because I wanted to have something that showed military aid to Russia since we were showing military aid to Ukraine. Again, these are hard stats to get you know, the real concrete numbers of, but I wanted to include that in there. We can go ahead and have a quick round of discussion. We probably will not get to all these hands, but we can get to a couple of them before we hang up tonight. Um, it was briefly mentioned, but yeah, China last month or um, late in February proposed a 12-point peace plan, which had uh, three of the major ones being to protect any nuclear power plants. As we know, the Zaporizhia power plant has been shelled by the Kiev government. Um, absolutely no use of nuclear weapons and uh, reparations. But then the US decides that it's not worthy to consider these peace negotiations because they're not sure that China is an unbiased uh, actor in this situation. Yet the US who's been parading its support for Ukraine is considers itself the sole uh, um, the legitimate uh, mediator of this conflict, which, you know, I mean, it really shows uh, hypocrisy there. But 
You, you probably have been seeing on uh, the news all the new anti-China rhetoric that's going on. Like um, they're claiming without proof that China is sending lethal aid to Russia. Again, China denies that. But yeah, you know, I, I just wanted to point out the hypocrisy. Great, thank you, comrade. Thank you, comrade. Um, so. Yeah, I'm actually, even though Biden's speech was very cringe inducing, I'm glad that I'm glad that you showed this in this presentation, along with Putin's speech, because like the sheer contrast between the two, like with Biden's speech, it was a whole bunch of appeals to emotion without any substance behind it, no concrete facts, just basically he's going on about um Russian aggression against Ukraine, much like a Confederacy apologist would talk about Northern aggression against the South. And meanwhile, Putin's speech is a lot different. Like whenever I watch Putin's speeches, um, like the content and the sort of tone of his speeches is much like, um, like a very passionate and well-respected professor. Like he knows what he's talking about. He doesn't try to confuse the audience. And of course he used like a couple of appeals to emotion here and there, like talking about how he's standing up for the people of the Donbass after they've been bullied. The, of course there's going to be that appeal to emotion because like, obviously it's horrible to think about the neo-Nazis terrorizing people of the Donbass. But yeah, it's like, you see that the, the Western narrative and all that is just, it's all just appeals to emotion, all just um, propaganda with no substance behind it. But then Russia's just telling the truth. They don't have to dress it up and everything. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, comrades. Uh, there was a comrade earlier that mentioned that there was a factory pumping out about you know 11,000 artillery shells per month and sending them to Ukraine. But that's not... not not even enough for two days of fighting in Ukraine. Like the scale of this conflict is, is huge. According to Department of Defense, back in November, Ukraine was firing about 6,000 artillery shells just per day. So also just because uh, there's, there's so much misinformation, manufacturing consent from corporate media, um, I wanna suggest a YouTube channel that's very good. Uh, the New Atlas, an ex-U.S. Marine does that show, and he goes over all pro-Ukrainian media and uh, corporate media and just kind of really dissects it and does a really good job of pointing out all the lies and fabrications. Uh, so I highly recommend checking that out to stay informed. Uh, thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I would second that. I've seen that channel do really good uh, videos, not just on Ukraine, but on other different things that the West is really pushing on, like the Iranian protests, Taiwan, uh, et cetera. So I, I would I would second that. Yeah, I just have I just have a couple of questions on those uh, st statistics. Uh, the stats on the military personnel and equipment is that total equipment that these countries and NATO have, or is that what's been used in the war so far? And also, do the uh, death stats include the eight years before the Russia's involvement? I believe that those stats are just what is in their stockpile. I don't believe it reflects what's on the battlefield. I wasn't able to find that unfortunately. So it just goes to show though, how in certain aspects, NATO definitely has a lot more than Russia. Certain aspects like the armored vehicles, Russia actually has more than NATO, but they definitely have more than Ukraine. 
And one of the things that I think that it also shows is that if you just take it looking at Russia versus Ukraine, sure, Ukraine looks like the uh, little, you know, kid that's being picked on by the big bully with way more, you know, guns and everything than they have. But when you think about NATO back behind Russia, uh, propping them up and the fact that NATO has a lot more power behind it, uh, you really f realize how much of a global international conflict that this is and just the implications that it has. First of all, tonight's class is really, really important. It's the reason why people tried to wreck our party. We didn't know it at the time, but it was the Ukraine. It was our position on the Ukraine. We didn't know it at the time. They never mentioned it. We found out later on when they were going around the planet to different meetings of other communist parties that had a similar view that they had. They were what Comrade Lenin calls left in form, left in phraseology, L-E-F-T, left, but right, R-I-G-H-T, right in essence, left in form, but right in essence. Remember those terms that Comrade uh, Lenin tells us about, because that's what these people were. The Ukraine is the cutting edge of the world communist movement today. Do you remember the cutting edge in 28? It was Trotskyism versus the communist movement, 1928. What was the cutting edge in the world communist movement in the 60s? It was Maoism. They were left in phraseology, but in effect, who did they side with? United States, the most imperialist of the worst. Remember, the Maoists supported Pinochet, the fascist butcher in Chile who overthrew the democratic elected government of Salvador Allende in 1970s. Remember that, that these people, they may sound left, but in essence, they are right. On the issue of what's going on, let's be clear about this. Romania, Poland, Hungary, Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. What has happened to these countries? What is the first thing they did since they left our, our family of socialism? They outlawed the Communist Party. They outlawed it. And any members who tried to continue their party, they put them in a prison. Imprison them. Let's not forget that. Fascism outlaws communist parties all the time, and it outlaws trade union movements. Fascism is worse than capitalism. It is the most conservative, most reactionary sections of the capitalist class. That's what fascism is. We can struggle, we can live and build under a bourgeois Putin administration in Russia. Lenin's mausoleum is open. The communist parties are allowed to run elections. Yes, the elections are rigged, but they're allowed, they're not imprisoned. You can do that under a bourgeois regime like we can in our country. Under fascism, comrade, our people are put in prison. Let's face it. They, um, since 1991, 
We have been on the offensive. What happened in 1991? Our world was destroyed. The people's democracies of Eastern Europe was destroyed. The Soviet Union, the cradle, the birthplace of world revolution, where workers and farmers took over a government. That was destroyed in 1991. This is the first time that we're actually going on our counteroffensive. That's the way many of us see this. It's not a fluke that tanks from the Russian army have red flags with hammer and sickles on them. You see it all the time. It's not a fluke. It's the mind of the people, those who are on the outside. That's the way we see it. So understand that, that this is not just a war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. This is a civil war for the minds and hearts of the people, not only in the Ukraine. There's one Ukrainian, the Ukrainians from the 30 years ago and 40 and 50 years ago, they're alive. They're fighting against the young Ukrainians. The last 30 years, 1991, they were brought up under fascism. Those young Ukrainians who have families now, they were brought up under fascism. Bandera, Stefan Bandera, who gave birth to him, Nazi Germany. Where do you think that flag comes from? The one with the blue and the gold. You think that came out of somebody's mind recently? That was from the Nazi period. Study it. So this is a desperate attempt. Whoever wins this war is going to win. And if the Ukrainians win, fascist Ukrainians, those Ukrainians who, who agree with us are going to be lost forever. The key will be locked up and they will be thrown out. That's what's going on now. We know, we know this for a fact that this is what's going on in Ukraine. So don't kid yourself. This is not democratic Ukraine just like it was in democratic Finland in 1940s. Finland was led by General Mannerheim. It was a Nazi general who was in control of, of uh, Finland. Study this, go back and study it. Finland was not a democratic country in that period. This is what they, the historians and what the bourgeoisie try to make you think. But if you do your own thinking and reading, you'll find out other things. So I just want to leave it with that. Thank you for everybody for coming tonight. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.